Well, uh, before I have my friend and Pastor Joe come up and share and show you a video, I want to take just a few moments um, to just share my heart with you. Uh, some of you know the story, some of you haven't heard it before, but uh, about 11 years ago, I was actually on a long run, I was trained for a marathon, I was on a long run on the Centennial Trail, and somewhere just before Barca Road, I could probably find the spot, uh, I'm on this run, and the Lord just whispers this to my heart, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was clear, and it was, it was this phrase, Kurt, someday you're going to pastor church in the valley. Now, I wish that I could tell you when I heard that, that being the spiritual giant that I am, that I, that was a joke, by the way, <laughs> that I would have um, immediately responded with, oh, God, yes, Lord, send me, I'm in, I'm ready, how, how exciting, Lord. But the truth is, my reaction was something along the lines of, no stinking way, God, I have done that, been there, done that, have no desire to plant a church again. My 20s and 30s, planted about four or five churches. I had been a senior pastor, and I was loving my job and my role in my ministry at Life Center. And there was no way in God's green earth that I wanted to leave that job and leave that place. Well, when I got home, I uh, said something to my dear wife, Laura. I said, honey, you guess what? You never believe what happened. I was kind of on this run, and the Lord, I think, I don't know, it was kind of weird. Maybe it's just pizza. But I, I, thought, I felt like, you know, God said, I sometimes going to plant a church in the valley. And my wife gave me that look. Now, if you're married, you know the look. And uh, she is a faith-filled woman, and she is a godly woman, and I love her dearly. But she basically gave me the look that said, there's no way that you're dragging me through that again. Not going to happen. And uh, I, I uh, kind of shrugged it off and let it go. What frustrated me, though, was for months after that, and I, I cannot tell you how many people, dozens probably, uh, but person after person would come up to me at Life Center after service or in the, you know, before service, or they would email me and they say, hey, when are you going to go plant a church? We want to go with you. Or when are you going to plant a church? Now, to be honest, in that time of Life Center's experience, especially, I think in two years prior to our going out, they planted three churches. So it was happening. A lot of people were coming and going, and it would have been normal for some to have looked at me and thought, yeah, Kurt's probably on that list, and someday he's going to go. But what was really irritating to me was how many times they kept asking me, and I kept hearing this, and every time it drug up that memory I had of running on the Centennial Trail and what I thought I heard the Lord say. And it was terribly irritating and very, very disturbing to me because it's not what I wanted to do. In fact, often I would look at people and in some sort of a joking way, I'd say, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, or, or I'd just laugh it off. Say, yeah, well, that's not going to happen. I, you know, I, I've been there and I'm done. Well, one morning in a time of prayer, I was uh, going through uh, the Bible like I do, and I was reading that day in John chapter 21. Now, John 21 is probably one of my most favorite passages in the book of John for certain and probably my most favorite in the New Testament. And if you're familiar with the story, it's the story of Peter's restoration. Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. And John 21 is about his restoration, where Jesus comes and really restores Peter to, to ministry. And I relate to Peter's idiocy. I've been there, I've been that guy, I've denied the Lord, and I re relate to the restoration of Jesus in his life. That's probably why I love that chapter. But I'm reading this chapter, John 21, and three times the Lord asked Peter, uh, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response every time, Jesus, you know I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. But what struck me that morning as I read this passage in John 21 is that every time 
that they had this interaction. The last thing Jesus said in, to Peter was, well, go feed my sheep. All right, then go take care of my lambs. All right, go and do what I've called you to do. And what struck me is that in response to Peter's declaration of love, and I hope you tell God all the time that you love him. We do that in worship. I hope you do it verbally in your words and prayer. It's awesome to say, Jesus, I love you. God, I love you. Thank you for loving me. It's awesome to do that. But what struck me here is that in, in this response of Peter's declaration of love, Jesus required a demonstration of that love. He said, Peter, if you love me, then go and feed my sheep. Go and take care of my church. In other words, Peter, go and be what I made you to be and do what I've called you to do. Well, that morning, reading that passage, I knew in my knower that uh, I couldn't deny what God was doing. I couldn't say no anymore, and I needed to say yes. And it wasn't too many months uh, after that that Laura and I and Brian and Heather uh, left Life Center to start this little place called East Point. And here's the lesson I've learned. Now, some of you have learned this lesson already. I'm a slow learner. It took me a while to figure this out. If you've got this down, great. If not, you might want to write this down. And here's the lesson. Our happiness and our comfort is not God's primary concern. It's not. I've said it all the time. I say it all the time around here. God's more concerned about your character than, than he is your comfort. Way more concerned about your character than your comfort. And our happiness and comfort is not God's primary concern or God's primary goal for us. His goal is personal growth for you to grow up in him and the growth of his kingdom. The expansion of the kingdom of God. That's what he's all about. And if you haven't figured that out yet, it's time you figure that out. That what he wants is for you to grow in Christ, to grow up in Jesus, to become the man or the woman that he wants you to be. And then he's all about using you and us to extend and to expand the kingdom of God. That's what matters most to him. It's not about our comfort. It's not about life being easy. And I had to face that when I left the comfort of my home church and and being with my friend Joe, and I, that was a challenge for me. And by the way, one of the other things I've learned in my experience, nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Have you figured that out too? Nothing worthwhile is ever easy. I look back over the last 10 years of our church's history, and I cannot imagine my life without you. I cannot imagine my life without this church. It hasn't always been easy. And at times it's been really hard. But it has always been good. It's always been good. And I am one very blessed man and very blessed pastor. And so before I have the video and Joe come up, I want to tell you thank you. Thank you for being a part of this journey. Some of you, a huge part of this journey called East Point. Thank you. Thank you for serving. Some of you have served for a decade now. You've served faithfully for years. And you have found a way to give away your life. And, and thank you for serving. Thank you for your sac the sacrifices that you've made. Many of you have given so much. You've sacrificed time, energy, and money. We've had four remodels in the last seven years. And, and uh, you know, I, I told you I wasn't the smartest pastor, and that may not have been the smartest thing to do, but it was God. And you have stepped up time and time and time again. And we just paid off, by the way, our, our, the, the last debt we had on this, this remodel was paid off December 31st. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> You guys have served and sacrificed, and I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for your patience with me, because I certainly am a leader who walks with a limp. And I have not always done it right, and I've made plenty of mistakes along the way. And I, I say this from time to time, if you're looking for the perfect church or the perfect pastor, keep looking, because I'm not it and we're not it. Maybe go back to Life Center, yeah. 
But in all seriousness, thank you for being patient and loving me. And I want to thank Joe and Lena, who were my friends now for a long time, like 37 years long. They've been our best friends. And I want to thank you for believing in me and for supporting me and encouraging me and kicking me out of the nest and uh, helping us get this, this place called East Point started. Without Life Center, we wouldn't be here. So thank you, Joe. Well, I want to show you a video right now that we've, uh, Teresa did. It's, she's captured in five minutes the last 10 years. It moves along quickly. And uh, I want you to watch this together and I'll come back. First thing I noticed when I saw that is how some of us have really aged in 10 years. <laughs> That's all right. Um, thank you again. The other thing I noticed, I was just uh, moved uh, to tears. The first service, seeing some of the baptisms. You may not know this, but in our 10 years, over 1,000 people have made a decision to follow Jesus. And over 750, <laughs> over 750 have been baptized in water, and that's many of you. I want to do one more thing uh, just to honor those that have been with us for a long time. Some of you go all, go all the way back to the old building, building on Mission and Argonne uh, seven, eight years ago. And if you've been with us that long, you came from the beginning, would you just stand? I just want to honor you. And go ahead, stand up. Thank you. Let's go honor these guys. Thank you. Well, it really is a privilege and a pleasure for me to have uh, one of my best friends and my motorcycle riding buddy and a guy that's really been a mentor to me and has taught me most of what I know about ministry. I learned from this guy. And he's my pastor, my friend. Would you welcome Joe Whitworth? Give it up for Joe. Well, hi, everybody. You can do better than that. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. Now I feel welcome. Well, it's, uh, it's a wonderful honor to be here with you today as you celebrate your 10th anniversary as a church. And um, let me just give you a little bit of the backstory that goes way, way back. Um, Lena and I, in fact, wave, honey. My wife's down here, my better half. There's Lena. And uh, she and I were married on August 30th, 1975, and uh, went away on a fantastic five-day honeymoon. That's a whole other story. Came back and moved into our first apartment called Green Acres Apartments in Eugene, Oregon. And I think we've got a picture of the Green Acre Apartments. Uh, there they are. And uh, 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 if we'll just keep that picture up for a moment. Lane and I moved into that bottom right-hand corner apartment down there, right in front of that, that, that little sedan. That was our apartment. And uh, we were just there for a week, back from our honeymoon, just there for a week, when a young couple moved into the apartment right next door, the left-hand apartment in front of the minivan, a uh, young couple uh, uh, named Kurt and Laura Bubna. And uh, he was 16, she was 15, they'd been married four years. Um, <laughs> but they moved in, and uh, we... We met each other and became fast friends, I mean, right from the get-go. And within a few weeks, Kurt and Laura were uh, involved in the youth ministry that uh, we were doing there with high school students. And uh, here we are 37 years later, and Kurt and Laura are uh, one of those rare and wonderful gifts, one that I hope every one of you have at least one of, and that is a lifelong friend. And uh, we have been friends uh, and co-workers for uh, these last 37 years. Well, three years after that, after we met there in the, uh, the apartments, uh, God called all four of us to Spokane, to a little church that was across the street from the county jail, the county courthouse, and um, 
we, uh, well, between Kurt and I, we took that thing down to nothing in a hurry. Um, <laughs> we changed the name from Spokane First Four Square Church to Life Center and uh, pretty much changed everything else. And with all those changes, the, the handful of people, the 40 folks that were there, kind of took a look at the changes we were making. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if it was me or Kurt. I'm just believing it was Kurt. They chose to leave. So... <laughs> What can I say? So we started over and, uh, and had, a, had a fun journey. Well, fast forward, if you will, 23 years, and uh, uh, Kurt is on our staff at Life Center and, of course, comes in, as, as you heard. He came in one day into my office uh, to tell me that God had called him to plant a church in the valley. And as you heard, we were in the middle of planting churches at that time. Uh, and so uh, eight months later, uh, Kurt and Laura and a team of folks from Life Center uh, took off and planted East Point over on uh, Mission and Argonne. And uh, here we are 10 years later, and East Point, of course, has become a great church and is making a huge impact here in the Spokane Valley. And I think all of you know that you have got probably the best pastor in the universe, right? Yeah. So congratulations on 10 years of great ministry and great impact. And just before I move on and get into the word, I want to just throw out one more challenge. You know, after 10 great years of ministry, now it's time for the next step, and it's time for you to start having babies. I don't mean these kind of babies. I mean it's time to plant some churches, right? And uh, this is part of what we do in our Life Center family of churches. Life Center has now planted eight churches. This was number four of our eight. And uh, we're getting ready to plant some more churches. In fact, we're getting ready to uh, launch our first international church plant here in the next year uh, in Russia. That'll be Life Center in Russia. Think about that. But, uh, uh, and more churches here in our own community. Why would we plant more churches in our community? Because churches are closing. And the other thing, add to that the fact that... Uh, Studies have shown time and again that the best way to reach new people is with new churches. And so we need more churches right here in Spokane and Spokane Valley. There are a lot of people yet to be reached. And so time to start having babies, and I'm looking forward to when East Point plants their first church, right? Woo! 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 All right. Okay, let's, uh, um, uh, Kurtz asked me to uh, bring the word uh, in five minutes or less. That's not going to happen, no. But, uh, but I'll, I'll, I want to, if you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 10, and then let me pose a question for you. Who do you think is the most important person in the world? Okay, thank you. Someone said Jesus, and in church, that is always the right answer, right? <laughs> right answer to every question, Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so we all agree Jesus is most important, but after Jesus, who's the most important person in the world? You know, people would say, oh, you know, some of the president of the United States or this person or, the, you know, some, someone with a lot of clout, a lot of weight, a lot of influence. I want to give you a different answer. I think the most important person in the world is the person in front of you right now. And by that, I mean whoever you're with at any given moment, that person ought to be for you the most important person in the world. And today's story in Mark chapter 10 underscores that idea. And uh, we're going to look at this story, use the SOAP method. S-O-A-P, the S is the scripture, we'll just read it. Uh, then the observation, the O, uh, what does it say, what does it mean, what's the, the interpretation of it. The application, what does it mean to me? What's God saying to me? How do I put this into practice in my life? And finally a prayer, we'll pray it back to God. So let's dive in, we'll start with the scripture, Mark chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 46. Mark 10, 46. 
Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he just shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. All right, the O part of this observation, uh, what's it say, what's it mean? We're going to just unpack the passage for a moment. Uh, Jesus is on his way. By the way, this is the last week of Jesus' life, and he's on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and the way to get there was through Jericho, which lay along the Jordan River Valley. And uh, this was the approach most people took, uh, pilgrims who were coming from Galilee down to Jerusalem uh, to go to the Passover. And of course, Jesus was on his way to the Passover, along with all the other pilgrims, but we also know that he had a higher purpose. He was going to Jerusalem to do what? To die. He was going to Jerusalem to redeem the whole world. And so uh, as he's leaving Jericho, there's a crowd of people surrounding him. It's this crowd of pilgrims with him on their way to Jerusalem. But the other thing you need to know is that rabbis in Jesus' day often taught as they walked. And so crowds would gather around them and listen, sometimes ask questions and interact. And uh, that's the picture here. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem with this crowd listening as he teaches. As they leave the gate, there's a blind beggar sitting by the roadside. His name's Bartimaeus. And uh, he stationed himself there at the city gate because, uh, like all panhandlers, he knows that the best place to get a lot of money is some high-traffic corner, right? And there was no place that was more high-traffic in the ancient world than sitting at the city gate. And so uh, Bartimaeus, on this particular morning, arrives at his usual spot by the city gate to beg and uh, probably joins a group of other blind beggars that sat with him there most days. Um, perhaps one of them said, hey, Bart, good to see you. Um, you're a little slow. Try to keep up, okay? Come on. <laughs> well, Bart couldn't see, but he could hear just fine. And before long, he heard the tramp of feet that alerted him to the fact that a crowd was coming. And he asked someone, hey, what's going on? And somebody said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, one of the advantages of sitting at the city gate all day was that you heard all the news. And for three years now, Bart had been hearing stories about this young rabbi from Nazareth who was teaching incredible things, but more than that, he was healing people, including blind people were getting their sight back. And I'm sure that as Bart heard these stories, he'd made up his mind, if Jesus ever passed by that way, he was going to be sure to get Jesus' attention and see if maybe he would be one of the lucky ones who was healed. And so suddenly, here's his chance, and he begins to shout out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now remember, the crowd that was around Jesus were listening to him. They were trying to hear Jesus teach. And now you've got this blind beggar over here by the roadside shouting, making a commotion. He's making it hard to hear. And so what does the crowd say to him? Yeah, basically, shut up. I mean, they try to hush him, and probably not too politely. But the more they tried to hush him, the louder Bartimaeus shouted. And then, of course, these beautiful words. Jesus stopped, it says. Jesus heard his cries, and he stopped. And then Jesus does an interesting thing. He turns to the crowd, who had just 
told him to shut up, right? He turns to the crowd and says, call him. And uh, I've often read that and thought, why didn't Jesus just call him himself, right? Jesus, because it says, you know, Jesus heard the cries. Jesus stops. Why doesn't he just say, Bartimaeus, come on over here? Instead, he turns to the crowd and says, you call him. And so the very people that have just said, shut up, now say, cheer up. <laughs> cheer up, Bartimaeus. On your feet. He's calling for you. And they bring him to Jesus. Here's why I think Jesus didn't call him himself, why he told the crowd. I think Jesus was teaching the crowd a lesson. The crowd had just prevented someone who wanted to come to Jesus from getting there. The crowd had just gotten in between Bartimaeus and Jesus. And it seems to me in the New Testament that whenever people get between someone who needs Jesus and Jesus, that Jesus gets a little riled about that. Think about the time parents were bringing their little children to Jesus to have him bless them. What did the disciples do? They shooed the parents away. And what was Jesus' response? He said he was indignant. And he said, let the children come. Here's the lesson. I think Jesus was teaching the crowd an important lesson. Here it is. I think Jesus wants us to be ushers, not bouncers. I think he wants us to be bringing people to Christ, not getting in the way and keeping them. So Bartimaeus stands there, and Jesus does a really interesting thing. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And at first glance, it's kind of a ridiculous question, right? Because it's obvious that Bartimaeus is what? He's blind, right? And when Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? I'm sure there were people in the crowd who went, well, duh, come on. <laughs> Pretty obvious. Why would Jesus ask such an obvious question? I think it's because he wanted Bart to ask. And this is really kind of a central lesson of prayer here. Does God know what you need before you ask? Every single time. In fact, Jesus said, Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus knew what Bart wanted. Jesus knew what Bart needed. Why did he say, what do you want, Bart? Because he wanted Bart to ask. Because he wanted Bart to engage him in an authentic and honest conversation. And that's why we pray. We don't pray to inform God. God already knows. We pray because God's inviting us into relationship. Rabbi, I want to see, he said. And the Greek word here literally means to see again, suggesting that Bart had probably been born with his eyesight and that at some point along the way had lost it. And with a word, Jesus heals him. Bart sees again, and I love this. The first thing Bart sees when he regains his eyesight is what? What's the right answer in church? Thank you, yes. He sees Jesus. And then I love this. The story ends with these words. He followed Jesus along the way. The beggar who was sitting by the road became the disciple who followed Jesus along the road. And in some ways, this little story is a microcosm of the Christian faith, that Christianity really begins with a personal response to Jesus. You have an encounter with Jesus, and you decide, am I, am I going to stay where I am, or am I going to get up and follow? And that's what Bartimaeus did. All right, well, I want to focus on, uh, on one thing today, two little words in verse 49 where it says, Jesus stopped. And the big idea at the top of your outline, Jesus stopped, and we must too. The most important person in the world is the one you're with right now. And uh, so I've got two little points of application, and they're summarized there in that big idea. The first one, number one, is that Jesus stops for you. In this story, the thing that has always struck me is that Jesus stops for blind Bartimaeus. And I want you to notice where Jesus was going when he stopped. He was on his way to Jerusalem where he was going to die for the sins of the world. Jesus was arguably on his way to do the most important thing that would ever be done in human history. And yet, on his way to do that, had time to stop for a blind beggar. 
You know, several years ago, I was at a leadership conference where one of the guest speakers was President Bill Clinton. And the man who was introducing President Clinton uh, talked to all of us before he brought him out. And he said, look, I know that some of you here in the room don't agree with Bill Clinton. You don't like his politics. Some of you are unhappy that I even asked him to come here and speak. But this is a leadership conference. He's going to talk to us about leadership. And here's the deal, he told all of us. He says, no matter how big your deal is that you're leading, his deal's bigger than yours. Would you say that's true? I mean, he's basically leader of the free world, right? And uh, I, I always thought about that when I read this story because uh, Jesus is on his way to do the biggest deal that's ever been done. And if you think your plate is full, if you think you've got a lot going on, if you think you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, stop and think what it was like for Jesus in this moment as he leaves Jericho and heads for Jerusalem and knows that within a week he's going to be hanging on a cross giving his life for the sins of the world. If anybody had a right to be preoccupied in that moment, if anyone had a right to say, well, I got a lot on my mind right now, it was Jesus, right? And yet Jesus, on his way to do the greatest thing ever done, stopped for this blind beggar. And I want to emphasize that too. Look who he stopped for. This wasn't, you know, a VIP. Bart was a ZIP. He was a nobody. He was a nothing by anybody's measure. And yet Bartimaeus mattered to Jesus and mattered so much that Jesus stopped for him on his way to do the most important thing that would ever be done, on his way to the cross. And I want you to just let that sink in, and I hope it will amaze you and at the same time humble you. And I hope it will humble you because what I want to say is that I believe that this is still true today, that when you cry out, Jesus stops that he hears your voice when you pray. And it's an amazing thing, right? Because we know that God's busy running the whole universe. And uh, there are, what, seven billion of us just on this one planet? At any one time, how many millions of voices are raised to God in prayer? And yet he hears your voice. It makes me think of when uh, our kids were small. Lane and I have uh, five children. They're all grown now. But here's a picture when they were little. And uh, they were kind of all bunched together. We have uh, Andy there on the right with his face between the girls. Uh, he was our oldest. And then Jeff. And then the twin girls. And so when the twins were born, Andy had just turned three. So we had four, three and under. And then a couple years later, Mike uh, came along there sitting in the high chair. We were going to have six. But by that time, we were having, you know. <laughs> But if, if you've, you know, those of you that have, and, and right now, by the way, I said they're all grown. We've got five grandkids. Number six is on the way. This month we'll have six. And when the grandkids are at the house, Lane and I laugh because it reminds us of what it was like when the kids were little. Because what's it like now? Loud and chaotic, right? You get all these little kids, just, it's just so loud. And I can remember times when, you know, we, with the five kids in the house, and they'd all be wanting attention at once. They're all crying out for something. Give me the, what about you? Stop! I mean, what is it every parent really wants? Peace and quiet. That's right, exactly. And I think about how it must be for God. With seven billion of us on the planet, and at any one moment, millions of us calling out, help me, Lord. And I want you to know that when you call out, God hears your voice, and he stops that you have his attention. 
You see, God's in the people business. That's what he's all about. People are God's top priority. They're his highest value. People are God's big deal. People are what matter to God. And you need to know that it's all kinds of people, including the people that you don't like so much. The rich and the poor, black and white, Republican and Democrat, single and married, gay and straight, Americans, Cubans, Iraqis, Chinese, Syrians. I mean, you name it. People matter to God, every single one of them. And that's why he went to the cross, for you and for me. Because God's in the people business. That's why Jesus stopped on his way to the cross when he heard Bartimaeus. And what I'm saying to you is that you matter to Jesus every bit as much as Bartimaeus does. That if it had been you sitting by the roadside, that Jesus would have stopped for you. And the truth is, I think we all every day have those roadside moments, don't we? I mean, I get myself in ditches all the time. And I'm constantly calling out to God. And I hope you do this too. In fact, you know, one of my most uh, prayed prayers, and I pray this all through the day, multiple times a day. One of my most prayed prayers is really simple. Want to know what it is? Help. Do you pray that prayer a lot too? You know? In fact, there's a new book out by Anne Lamott. Uh, she's a wonderful author. And the name of the book is Help, Thanks, Wow. Three prayers everyone ought to pray. Aren't those good prayers? Help, thanks, wow. And um, I pray this prayer dozens of times a day. Lord, help me with this child. Lord, help me love my wife. Lord, help me know what to say to this hurting person standing in front of me. Lord, help me lead our church, these people you love. Lord, help me give this talk. Over and over, help me, help me, help me. Do you think God ever gets tired of it? Do you think God ever hears me saying, help, help, help? God, oh, brother, what a needy, gee whiz. He's so wearing me out. No, I think what happens is every time I call, Jesus stops. He hears my cry and he helps. And I want you to, I hope today you're catching what I think this story shows us of the heart of God. It's the heart of God that beats for people. It's the heart of God that beats for you. And when you call, Jesus stops. When you call, Jesus stops. All right, so that's the first application. I just want you to know that and encourage you. I hope you'll pray. And pray often and pray regularly. When you call, Jesus stops. But I want to take it one step further and move from this relationship between you and God to this relationship between you and the people around you. We've got to stop for others. We've got to stop. For, just like Jesus stopped for Bartimaeus, we've got to learn to stop for people. And, um, you know, Jesus often made heroes of people who stopped for others. One of his most famous stories, Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. All of you know it. Jewish man is ambushed. In fact, interesting story because it's on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, this very road Jesus was traveling. And on that road, this Jewish man is ambushed, beaten, robbed, left for dead. And uh, along comes a priest. And you've got a picture, you know, this, Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish audience. And so as he tells the story, and they're thinking this poor Jewish man, you know, beat up and robbed. And then along comes a priest. What's everyone in the audience think? Oh, good, good. This is good. You know, the, but what's the priest do? I mean, the, let me cast it in terms. The priest for this Jewish audience would kind of be like, this would be like Pastor Kurt. So it would be like me telling you the story, saying this man's beaten up. And along comes Pastor Kurt. What do you all think? Ah, oh, yeah, Pastor Kurt. He's going to take it. What's he do? Walks on by. You all go, oh, Pastor Kurt. That is so horrible. 
Well, Jesus continues the story. He says, well, along comes a Levite. Levite would have been the priest's assistant. Assistant pastor. Here, maybe this is Pastor Brian. Wave, Brian. There you are back there. Yep. Along comes Pastor Brian. Now you're all thinking what you're thinking. Well, Kurt must have been having a bad day. Praise God, Brian's here. And what's Brian do? Walks on by. And you're going what? You're going, oh, our church sucks. That's what you're like. It's terrible. And then along comes a Samaritan. Now, you know what everyone in Jesus' audience would have thought? The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. In fact, you know, I said they come from Galilee and they have to cross over at Jericho to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The reason they have to do that is they don't come down through Samaria. It's too dangerous. Jews going through Samaria could be beaten up. Samaritans going through, or Jews going through Samaritan territory. But, you know, either way, trouble. So when Jesus says, along comes a Samaritan, everyone in the audience, the Jewish audience goes, oh. He's going to finish him off. <laughs> right? If there's anything left, he'll kill this guy, take what's left. It's all over. Oh, boy, this is really bad. To put that in modern terms, if we were telling the story here in America today, we would say an American person, you know, beaten, left by the roadside, along comes a Republican. <sighs> Walks on by. Oh. Along comes a Democrat, walks on by. Then comes a member of Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. And what do you think? Oh, this guy's dead. But the Taliban member kneels down, binds up his wounds, takes care of him. And Jesus said, now, who was a neighbor to the man? And the answer was, the wrong guy. That was the answer. Yeah, I mean, everyone thought, oh, Jesus, you really messed up the story. That's so bad. <laughs> Pastor Kurt, Pastor Brian, anybody but this guy. But who was the hero of the story? It was the guy who stopped. It was the guy who stopped. And the truth is that you and I are often like the priest or the Levite. We're often too busy to stop, right? We don't have time. We can't be bothered. We're late. We've got more pressing business but God, remember, is in what business? The people business. And we've got to be that too. And so we've got to learn to stop. We've got to learn to stop for our spouses and our kids and our friends and our neighbors and our family, our coworkers, our classmates, and yes, even our enemies. We've got to remember the most important person in the world is the one in front of you right now. And as I said, it starts with the spouse and kids. It starts at home. Now, I remember one time... Um, this was one night, Lena, I'm sure, remembers this too, but uh, it was later in the evening, and uh, she dished up a bowl of ice cream for me. I was busy reading Newsweek magazine. I was so engaged in my magazine, I didn't even notice that she set the ice cream down next to me, and when I finally finished the magazine, got up to go to bed, I noticed there's this puddle of melted ice cream in a bowl. So I go in. She's already, you know, headed to bed, so I, I, I crawl into bed next to her, and she says, hey, can we talk? Really? I mean, it's bedtime. I mean, but why didn't you talk to me when we were out in the living room? She said, I couldn't even get your attention with a bowl of ice cream. You could belly dance, I said. <laughs> Can anybody relate to this? 
I can get so focused on my task, I can get so focused on what I'm doing right now that I just walk right by people. I don't pay attention. Not just with my spouse, my kids. I can't tell you how many times. If I had one thing I could go back and change in my parenting, here it is. I can't tell you how many times my kids said to me, Daddy, can you play now? And what I say, not now, not now. Why? I'm busy. I got stuff I got to do. Not now, not now, not now. My number two son, Jeff, died just weeks before his 23rd birthday in an accidental overdose of prescription meds that he took on his own. It was a horrible, horrible tragedy. And the night that he died, uh, about 8 o'clock that night on a Saturday night, he came into my room where I was busy just finishing up last-minute prep, you know, for the Sunday service the next morning. And he came in and said, 8 o'clock, said, hey, Dad, can we go to a movie? Not now. I mean, I said, sorry, Jeff i got to finish this. You know, those were the last words that I ever said to my son. And I can't tell you how much regret I had afterwards and thought, why didn't I just put that aside and say yes to my son? Why didn't I stop? You hear something I've learned? I've had a lot of times in my life when I've regretted not stopping, but I've never had a time where I regretted stopping. Not now. One of the things that came out of that whole experience for me was I changed my default answer with my kids and grandkids. And uh, from that time to this, that was 2006, my default answer now is yes. Dad, can you do this? <sighs> yes. You know what I'm saying? I'm busy, I've got this. Yes, I can do it. This will wait. A number of years ago, and here's my, I'll finish with this story, but a number of years ago, I was, um, when I was first writing this particular talk, uh, I ended up down at the church office, and uh, I was sitting there on my computer, and I just typed out these words, Jesus stops for people, just written it out. And the door to my office opened, there was an, a door that went outside, uh, and it was a, a gentleman, I didn't know him real well, and he obviously didn't know our office, because he thought he was walking into the office lobby, right, to see the receptionist, and he accidentally walked into my private door into my office and uh, immediately realized, you know, what he did, went, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, apologize for barging in, and uh, like I said, I didn't know him real well, but I said, well, can I help you with something, and he said, well, actually, I was kind of hoping I could talk to you, would you have a few minutes, and it's late Friday afternoon, and I'm trying to get this message done, and I'm working really hard, and I'm feeling the pressure, you know, because it's Friday, but, but uh, we had Saturday services that time. It's Friday, it's Saturday's coming, and I'm thinking, oh, no. And then I remembered the words I had just typed out. Jesus stops for people. And I felt like God had me in a headlock. Are you going to just talk this, or are you going to walk it? Are you going to live it? And so I closed the lid on my computer, and I said, yeah, i got some time. Sit down. And we had a great conversation for about a half an hour. And I want to say again, I have never regretted stopping for someone. I have a lot of times I've regretted that I didn't stop. The most important person in the world is the person in front of you right now. And I want to leave you with these two challenges. I hope this week that every time you find yourself in the ditch, you'll call. And know that when you call, Jesus stops. But I also hope that when you're with people this week, your default answer will be yes, that you'll stop, that you'll engage, that you'll pay attention, that you'll listen, that you'll be fully present in the moment because God's in the people business and so are we. Let's pray.
Thank you so much, Lord, that when we call, you hear us. And my prayer is that every one of us this week will engage you in honest conversation more. And then thank you too, Lord, that you're in the people business and you call us into that same business along with you. And so help us, Lord, this week to remember, especially when we get busy and we've got all these tasks and things going on, to remember that the most important person is the one you put in front of us right now. And to stop, to listen, to be fully present and fully engaged. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.